The issue at hand is a legal tug-of-war between SpaceX and the United States Department of Justice. SpaceX has taken legal action against the U.S. government, arguing that the administrative process accusing the company of employment discrimination against refugees and asylees violates constitutional law. The backdrop of this unfolding drama includes a complaint by the DOJ claiming that SpaceX had a history of not hiring non-U.S. citizens or green card holders from 2018 to 2022. SpaceX, however, counters this by stating that the administrative judges hearing such cases are not constitutionally appointed, thus denying the company its right to a jury trial. We'll be unpacking the nitty-gritty of this case, the arguments on both sides, and the previous legal precedents that could influence the outcome. Now, SpaceX has made a name for itself in the aerospace industry, attracting billions in contracts from federal agencies like NASA and the Department of Defense. Despite this, the company finds itself entangled in a lawsuit filed last Friday in a Texas federal court. Now, according to SpaceX, the administrative judges from the Department of Justice handling employment discrimination cases against immigrants are not appointed in a manner consistent with constitutional requirements. This, SpaceX argues, infringes upon its constitutional right to a jury trial. The Department of Justice, on the other hand, bases its case on complaints going back to 2018. They claim SpaceX systematically refused to hire people who were not U.S. citizens or green card holders. They say that SpaceX's justification, federal export control laws, doesn't hold water. Now, SpaceX's lawsuit presents a multifaceted defense. First, it claims to have employed hundreds of non-U.S. citizens thereby dismissing the DOJ's allegations as misplaced. Now, secondly, it emphasizes that many of its projects have national security implications, making the hiring process more complex due to potential fines for employing foreign workers. But the crux of SpaceX's argument is constitutional. The company argues that the DOJ administrative judges have powers that should be exclusive to officials appointed by the president, according to their interpretation of the law. This argument borrows from a 2022 federal appeals court ruling that deemed in-house enforcement by the Securities and Exchange Commission unconstitutional. Now, the constitutional argument made by SpaceX is not new or isolated. It comes within a larger framework of legal scrutiny concerning the appointment and authority of administrative judges. It's significant that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to review a similar case involving the SEC. That case questioned the constitutionality of administrative judges in the context of in-house enforcement proceedings. The Supreme Court review signals a broader judicial willingness to reevaluate the limits and powers of administrative bodies. Which, edit this out. The limits and powers of administration bodies, which could have a ripple effect on similar cases, including that of SpaceX. Now, secondly, the timing of SpaceX's lawsuit coincides with the Biden administration's own legal action against the company. Just last Thursday, the government sued SpaceX for allegedly discriminating against asylees and refugees in its hiring places. Edit this out. Discriminating against asylees and refugees in its hiring practices. The administration's lawsuit leans heavily on the Immigration and Nationality Act, which prohibits discrimination based on citizenship status. This dual legal action places SpaceX in an especially precarious position, as it must now defend itself on both administrative and federal court fronts. 
thereby adding another layer of complexity to an already convoluted legal situation. One can also observe the role that previous judicial decisions and rulings play in shaping the current dispute. For instance, SpaceX cited a 2022 Federal Appeals Court ruling concerning the SEC to bolster its constitutional argument. The federal court had deemed the commission's in-house enforcement proceedings unconstitutional. Now, this sets a sort of legal precedent that SpaceX hopes to leverage, arguing that if the SEC's proceedings are unconstitutional, then so too are those of the DOJ's administrative judges who are similarly appointed. Lastly, it's worth noting that the case against SpaceX seeks monetary penalties under federal employment discrimination law. This adds a financial dimension to the dispute, and according to SpaceX, provides an additional reason why the case should be heard in a federal court instead of through an administrative process. The stakes are therefore not just interpretive or procedural, but carry substantial economic implications for SpaceX as fines could amount to significant sums, further compounding the company's argument for a trial by jury. Now, this multifaceted legal framework not only complicates SpaceX's individual case, but could also set the stage for future legal debates involving administrative proceedings. Edit this out for future legal debates involving administrative proceedings versus federal court trials. Now, the Department of Justice has also cited public statements made by Elon Musk indicating a pattern of discrimination. This brings us to the court of public opinion. Musk himself, an immigrant from South Africa, has an interesting role in this saga. While Musk contends that SpaceX is merely following federal regulations, the Department of Justice believes these regulations have been misinterpreted and misapplied, leading to widespread routine discrimination. This issue isn't just about SpaceX and the U.S. government, though. It could set a precedent for how administrative judges are appointed and how employment discrimination cases are heard as a whole, potentially affecting many other companies and regulatory bodies. Now, the legal standoffs between Musk and the U.S. government seem to be part of a larger tapestry of ongoing confrontations. Musk recently faced legal scrutiny following his $44 billion buyout of Twitter last year, and now SpaceX is under the judicial microscope. These multi-layered legal challenges signal an intriguing phase in the relationship between private enterprises and the federal government, particularly when it comes to questions of constitutional interpretation and social responsibility. Cyrus Rex mission is on the verge of completing its round-trip journey to the asteroid Bennu in less than 48 hours. The spacecraft is expected to re-enter Earth's atmosphere and land in the Utah desert, carrying with it precious samples from the asteroid. Now, this event promises to be a landmark in our understanding of the early solar system and maybe even the origins of life itself. Now, the origins, spectral interpretation, resource identification, and security regolith explorer, or OSIRIS-REx, has been in action since 2016, and this mission's central goal was to visit asteroid Bennu and collect samples to bring back to Earth for closer examination. The spacecraft performed several maneuvers to line up its trajectory for the re-entry and landing in the Utah Test and Training Range. According to Sandra Friend, OSIRIS-REx program manager at Lockheed Martin, the spacecraft has been exceptionally accurate in its trajectory and performance. All signals indicate that the mission is proceeding according to plan. Now, while the mission's primary focus was on sample collection, its success relied on meticulous planning and precise execution. The touch-and-go operation at the asteroid 
allowed Osiris Rex to gather around 250 grams of material, exceeding its requirement of 60 grams. Not knowing the precise mass isn't a drawback here. In fact, it adds an element of anticipation as scientists eagerly await the capsule's return. Once back, researchers will examine the sample in NASA's special curation facility at the Johnson Space Center. The principal investigator for the mission at the University of Arizona emphasizes that the asteroid material could reveal elemental details about the very origin of life in the early solar system. Notably, the team does not yet have a precise measurement of the material on board, with a margin of error at about 101 grams. Nevertheless, these samples, once returned, are expected to be available for public viewing on October 11th in NASA's Johnson Space Center, provided that no external factors affect this timeline. Now, with the spacecraft all set for its re-entry, the final go-no-go decision for capsule separation is scheduled to happen early on September 24th. If all systems are deemed operational, the capsule will separate from the main spacecraft at 6.42 a.m. Eastern Time. And following that, the main spacecraft will perform a maneuver to avoid Earth's trajectory and aim for its extended mission to visit another asteroid, Apophis, in 2029. The capsule will enter Earth's atmosphere around 10.42 a.m. Eastern Time, with an expected landing 11 minutes later. Now, recovery teams will then secure the capsule and prepare it for its subsequent journey to NASA's Johnson Space Center. And despite the optimism, mission officials are prepared for various unexpected scenarios. These could range from technical malfunction to fiscal hurdles, especially considering the pending government shutdown that could disrupt the timely examination of the samples. Lori Glaze, director of NASA's Planetary Science Division, assured that even if such delays occurred, the samples would remain secure. She stressed the importance of patience. Considering the samples had been around for billions of years, a slight delay in their analysis would not be a catastrophe. Now, the OSIRIS-REx mission is the culmination of a long journey that began as an idea in a Tucson bar in 2004, where Loretta and Michael Drake, the mission's original lead scientists who passed away shortly after the project was approved, met with a Lockheed Martin engineer to discuss the project. It was finally selected for development in 2011, leading to its launch in 2016 and its arrival at Bennu two years later. Loretta, who will be part of the team to recover the samples in Utah, has dedicated almost 20 years of his life to this mission. Now, scientists believe that Bennu is a remnant from the early days of the solar system and could help answer fundamental questions about our origins. Sir Brian May, a musician, an astrophysicist played a pivotal role in the mission by using his expertise in stereo imaging to determine the safest sites for sample collection on Bennu. This interdisciplinary approach reiterates the symbiosis between art and science, both of which were necessary for this mission's success. And once the capsule lands, it'll be taken to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, where initial analysis will be conducted. Dr. Ashley King from London's Natural History Museum will be among the first scientists to examine the material. And this sample could offer us unprecedented insights into the universe, marking another leap for mankind in understanding our place in the cosmos. The inaugural flight of the SpaceX Starship took off from Boca Chica, Texas, on April 20th of 2023. And although the launch achieved some basic milestones, it didn't go off without a hitch. There was a significant damage to the launch mount, and debris was scattered across a considerable area, 
prompting a joint investigation by SpaceX and the FAA. The result? 63 corrective actions for SpaceX to implement, with the most notable one being a new water deluge system to mitigate the immense force generated by Starship's 33 Raptor engines. Now, the water deluge system is essentially a massive sprinkler system that douses the launch pad with water to absorb some of the energy during liftoff. It's not a new concept in rocketry, and NASA has been using it for decades. However, the scale of which SpaceX is implementing it for the Starship Raptor engines is what makes it special. The system is part of SpaceX's broader strategy to not only correct past mistakes, but to innovate and set new standards for the future of space travel. However, before this new system and other corrective actions can be fully operational, there's a regulatory hoop to jump through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The agency has flagged the need for an environmental review covering not just the engineering aspects, but also the potential impact on the local ecosystems, particularly endangered species. This throws a spanner in the works for SpaceX's tight timelines for the next Starship launch. It's a dance between technological advances and environmental conservation, making the road ahead for SpaceX a bit more challenging than what was initially thought. Now, before SpaceX can go ahead and test its new implemented improvements, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is stepping in to evaluate these upgrades, especially the water deluge system. And according to a Fish and Wildlife Service email to Bloomberg, the entire review process could span between one to four months. With SpaceX eager to relaunch the Starship next month, this adds a new layer of uncertainty to the venture schedule. Now, Aubrey Buzek, a public affairs specialist at the FWS, stated that after reviewing the FEA's final biological assessment, the FWS could take up to 135 days to go through the corrective measures. Now, the review from the FWS is not a short affair. It can stretch anywhere from a month to almost half a year. And the outcome, well, if the Fish and Wildlife Service takes the full 135 days for the review, SpaceX's dream of launching Starship again this year could be entirely derailed. This is particularly unsettling because SpaceX has already moved ahead with its corrective measures, assuming they get the green light from the FAA soon. But here's the catch. The FWS hasn't even started the formal review of these corrective measures yet, which could add a significant amount of time to an already delayed timeline. So what's next for SpaceX? The FAA still needs to be satisfied with the 63 corrective measures. And if they aren't, a whole new set of discussions will begin. Then, of course, the FWS must issue their final biological assessment, which may or may not result in additional requirements for SpaceX. And in the end, it's a game of wait and watch. And SpaceX finds itself stuck between the gears of regulatory checks and its own ambitions. And the FAA's role doesn't end in just ticking off a checklist. They must also evaluate whether the changes SpaceX has made after the April 20th launch would require a more thorough review. And the license that SpaceX used for the first Starship orbital launch was tailored specifically for that one mission. And since the upcoming flight would involve modification, there's a big question mark on whether the previous environmental assessment still holds up. If it doesn't, that could set off another round of comprehensive evaluations, further delaying the launch. Now, the FAA and SpaceX have what Kelvin Coleman, FAA Administrator for Commercial Space Transportation, describes as a generally positive working relationship. And according to Coleman, 
Of the 63 corrective actions listed in the mishap report, 27 are linked to public safety. These specific actions will need to be closed out and verified before any future operations. All these factors come together to make the FAA's role pivotal in SpaceX's journey, serving both as a gatekeeper and a guiding force, helping the company navigate the labyrinth of rules, regulations, and standards that stand between them and their next giant leap for mankind. The FAA, for its part, still hasn't provided SpaceX with the necessary approvals for the subsequent flight, though. If the FAA finds that its previous environmental assessment is no longer relevant due to the recent changes, a more in-depth review could be necessary. And the FAA expects to complete its safety review by the end of October, but this doesn't guarantee SpaceX an immediate go-ahead. The agency's approval hinges in part on how quickly the FWS completes its environmental review. And if the FWS decides to fully utilize its 135-day review period, there's a chance Starship's next flight may not happen this year. This would have a cascading effect on SpaceX's other mission timelines and could make stakeholders antsy. For example, a delay in Starship's next launch could impact its role in NASA's Artemis lunar lander variant, among other missions. Now, SpaceX is navigating this web of environmental and regulatory scrutiny as it aims to achieve its next big milestone with Starship. This highlights the multidimensional challenges that come with pioneering work in the space sector. From engineering fees to environmental stewardship, it's not just about reaching the stars, but doing so responsibly. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to hit the subscribe or the follow button on whatever podcast platform you're on right now. We have some news coming in about Starship. And it's good, real good news, really good news about the next launch of Starship. And then there's another thing that's a little bit iffy. And it was literally one line that it was, it put things into question for me. I had to question some things about the next Starship launch because there's a possibility that there could be like a little bit of a holdup. So I want to just, I want to express that I don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks, but I'm not sure if you guys have heard, but there's been announcements from a few people that they are getting ready for a launch campaign for IFT2 right now. They're in the process. SpaceX is in the process at Starbase, Boca Chica of getting the ship in the final phases for the Starship launch IFT2 coming up. But we have to, I want to show you some other cool stuff too, because this is pretty cool. This has a lot to do with Starship and a lot to do with this test campaign, because this test campaign isn't just for IFT2. This is for the future of Starship. This isn't just for the next month or so where we see you. Cool. IFT2 launched. We get to see this cool launch. No, this is the beginning of something that could possibly change everything. So I want to show you what NASA posted the other day about, I got to pull this up for you just so I can get it on here so you can all see it. There we go. This is huge. This is huge for Artemis. This is huge for SpaceX. This is from NASA. NASA is working with SpaceX to develop the Starship Human Landing System, HLS, for use during Artemis 3. I'm going to blow this up so you guys can actually read along. 
and Artemis 4 missions to land American astronauts. Notice they didn't say Artemis 5 and beyond. So Artemis 3 and Artemis 4. The Starship HLS will be powered by two variants of the company's Raptor engines, one optimized to operate in atmospheric pressure at sea, like a Boca Chica starbase, and one optimized to operate in space or in a vacuum where there is no atmosphere. So landing on the moon, right? Or going to the moon. Last month, SpaceX demonstrated a vacuum-optimized Raptor's performance through a test that successfully confirmed the engine can be started in the extreme cold conditions resulting from extended time in space. One challenge that differentiates Artemis missions from those in low-Earth orbit is that the landers may sit in space without firing for an extended period of time, causing the temperature of the hardware to drop to a level below what they would experience on a much shorter low-Earth orbit mission. So they're going to be in orbit around the moon. Some phases, they're going to be going to the moon sometimes. So not only are they going to be in space, but they're going to be on another celestial body. They'll be on the moon. So it's cold there too. And they have to make sure that these Raptors work in, in those environments. So one of the first testing milestones SpaceX completed under its Artemis 3 contract in November 2021 was also an engine test demonstrating Raptors' capability to perform a critical phase of landing on the moon. This is basically September 4th, 2023 at 2 p.m. So this was yesterday. Testing critical technologies and hardware under simulated and actual flight conditions is key to the development of the Artemis moon landers. And basically, they are saying, hey, we did this. We did this in SpaceX. Oh, yeah, we got this. We got this test of Raptor vacuum engine chilled to mimic conditions after a long coast period in space. So this long coast period, from the Earth to the moon. Pretty important, pretty, pretty intense. And hopefully we can get this too and get some audio for you. It might be loud, so be careful. I haven't tested this. I've tested other audio, but here we go. We got a Raptor firing here. Basically white noise or just that's it. <laughs> You get for the long coast, it's, what is this? Where did it start at? It was, there we go. It starts at eight seconds, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. So about a four, four to five second test of this Raptor is enough for them to, that's so loud with headphones. Sorry, headphones users. Yeah, to mimic conditions after a long coast period in space. So after the long coast period, so after they go to the moon, after they're on their way to the moon, they have to fire these Raptors. So very cool Raptor engine demonstration of a descent burn for lunar surface down below here on their tweet. And I'm going to, there's no audio in this, luckily, <laughs> because man, was that was a bright audio last time. So this is a longer duration, I believe. So two seconds, three, four seconds, five seconds, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Descent burn to the lunar surface. So they're going to be burning. It seems like they're going to be burning for a while here from two seconds to, I believe it's 22 or something. Like that. Maybe it's longer than that. Yeah. It's the whole thing. Okay. So 20 from two seconds in the video, and then it just fades out so it just keeps going so basically a whole 30 second burn wrap through engine demonstration of a descent burn to the lunar surface 
insane. Incredible that they got that done. You didn't get any noise? Oh, wow. Okay. That's good <laughs> because it was really loud. It was really loud. Let me, let me see if I, I believe I, it shows that I'm seeing audio come out. So after that echo in the beginning, we might not be able to listen to the videos out of Kathy. Kathy Leaders, who we're going to talk about in just a second, because Kathy used to work at NASA. Kathy used to work at NASA, head of their program for a little bit. But Kathy, Kathy Leaders, very important person. Leaders has led NASA's human spaceflight program as the associate administrator of the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Okay. And we're going to get into some SpaceX stuff in just a moment here, but into some Starship stuff. Mona, but this is leading into it. Kathy works at SpaceX now. Went from NASA as the lead of the human spaceflight program, as the associate administrator of the human exploration and operation. But that's such a long title. Just say, we take care of people in space. <laughs> NASA career as a co-op in 1992, and then SpaceX career on May 15th, 2023. A couple weeks after retiring from NASA, it was reported that leaders would join SpaceX as a general manager working on a Starship program at Starbase. She reports directly to SpaceX president and CEO Win Shotwell. So Kathy is general manager working on Starship at Starbase. Very important to, to notice this because Kathy had an announcement the other day about Starship and where they're at. And I'm Sure. Let me know if you can hear Kathy speaking here. This is from Space Padre Isle on YouTube. Hey, what's up, Bob? What's up, Star Watcher? Who else is here? Matthew, all good. Jedi Master, welcome everybody. Liam, Malt, is it Malt or Malty? I don't want to say it wrong, but Michael Maxi, what's up? There's the HLS will use the sea level raptors to slow down Starship into landing position on the mid fuselage. Super Dracos will fire two set HLS down on the lunar surface. The ones at the top, right? I wish I had my model here. I have a an HLS model somewhere, but there, there are thrusters at the top. The Super Dracos will, I think those will steer it and place it down softly too. I think that's where they're at right now. So this is Kathy at South Padre Isle Island in Texas, which is right across from SpaceX's Starbase. It's like right across uh, the water there. So not too far away. She had a talk there the other day. Let me know if you can hear this, please. Eh? Eh? Okay. Let me know if you guys can hear that because we had a little bit of a, an issue earlier. No audio. Okay. What is going on here? Anyway, so Kathy says, and I'll paraphrase this. She said they have the final preparations for flight are to put your flight termination systems on. So she says in this video, and you can, I'll link it in chat after we're done with the show. So you can actually watch this, but space Padre Isle is on uh, Twitter or X. If you want to check it out. And then she says, and so all this means is we're doing one more phase to get ready for flight. So they're getting ready for flight at Starbase. Starship is being prepped for flight right now. So SpaceX in the final preparations at Starbase for Starship, they're prepping for flight. Okay. So that's what Kathy said with this tweet. And then this tweet, which I wish I had audio. I don't know why it's not working. I don't know why I've done this forever. And I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why it's not working, but I can see the levels up here. 
I don't know, there's some sort of weird thing going on. But in this video, she says, they're in the process of destacking ship 25, which they've done. They've destacked ship 25 from the booster to get f ready for the final preps. I'm doing play by play here for the mission. And one of the key things you got to do is do the flight termination system. And then they're going to do one more time to process the vehicle, look through it, make sure that everything's in place. And then they will no rest for the weary. She says they basically just threw kind of a monkey wrench and everything, but basically she's saying we're there. All we need to do is prep the flight termination system. We're going to do some final checks and then starship and booster will be ready for flight. So we're really close. Now we have to wait for the FAA, of course, because the FAA always has to have the final say in a flight of anything because they have to make sure that people and property and things are taken care of and not damaged while these flights are happening. So Kathy here is saying everything technical is getting done on SpaceX's side. They've done the 63 checkouts. They've sent them to the FAA. The FAA has to check those out, make sure everything works. Everything is in place for the next flight. And then if that's true, if everything, the 63 checkouts for SpaceX are all done and they're satisfactory, the FAA will grant them the license to fly again. Now, Elon Musk, actually, some people have always said, hey, Elon and SpaceX and the FAA is holding back SpaceX. The FAA is just doing their job. And I have to reiterate this sometimes because there's a small, a tiny handful of people that are always the most vocal that have the, their own best interest at heart when they say things about the FAA is holding back SpaceX due to some unknown circumstances. We don't know who these people are, why they're holding them back, but there has been rumors over the time that SpaceX and the Starship program have been trying to get off the ground that they are taking the place of SLS and that the other companies that build SLS are scared of it, SpaceX, basically. So none of that's true. Actually, here's a video, which I can't actually show you the audio. I can't even hear it, but maybe the closed captions will do the do it justice. So this video basically says, I'm late. This is Elon Musk talking, and this was what? couple of one day ago, he said, I'm late with a meeting with the FAA. So Elon Musk is in direct comp, like direct connection with the FAA. So if there's no communication, like some people say, Elon Musk, it's just, Hey, I've got a meeting with the FAA. It shows that maybe these 63 mitigation factors that they've been working on, Elon Musk is going to go through them with the FAA. We're not exactly sure what the, what the meeting was about, but there's a possibility. That's what it was that Elon Musk met with the FAA, talked with them about the future flight of Starship IFT2. These are things that we did, the mitigation factors, and we're going to move forward with the launch of uh, Starship, like the like the IFT1 flight here. Maybe they're going to get maybe they're getting ready for the flight of IFT2 and the Elon had to say, "Hey, we're doing we're doing everything we can to get this ready for the for the next flight." So 
there's a possibility that Elon talked about that and that they're in the final prep because Kathy leaders basically said, hey, we're, we destacked ship 25 to put the flight termination system on. And because we destacked it, flight termination system going on, we're going through the final checks. Elon Musk is talking to the FAA, probably closing out some of those issues. And Kathy also stated in one of those videos that the FAA is looking through all those and they have, they do have to close some of those things out and make sure that they're okay. But the FAA can take a long time. As we know, the FAA is a, it's a government body and those things take time. And if there are 63 things that Elon has to go or SpaceX has to go through in order to mitigate the, the possible destruction of things for, for IFT2, it just takes a little bit of time. That's all there is to it. There's no two ways around it. The FAA has people looking over these things. They have to make sure that some of those things were really broad. Fix Bolt or something, something like that. Like fix what install 91 cameras. Where are those cameras? What do those cameras do? We're not exactly sure, but they are there to check for leaks. We know that as, as much as we know, like that's pretty much it. All we know in the internals and the externals of the Starship. So when they launch for IFT2, they will have better views of the internals of Starship than, than what we will have actually. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the next few weeks, because if it's destacked for the flight termination system, then they're basically going to stack it up again and just let it sit there and wait after they do their final checks flight termination system is literally the last thing they do i want to pause this like just a second here it's a literally the final thing they do before they stack it back up and then they do the final preparations for checkouts around the ship and the ground systems before the flights one thing that could hold Elon and SpaceX back. There's a few things that they've been doing with the FAA, a bunch of things actually that they've been doing with the FAA, meeting with the FAA. But the, the thing that we have to really think about here is what happened right here. So what happened on launch when the ground was just tore up because Starship was so powerful, it just destroyed, it decimated everything around the launch pad. Concrete flew everywhere. There was dust everywhere. Could things have gotten gotten a little bit environmentally out of whack? There's a possibility. Fish and wildlife. The FAA has worked with the fish and wildlife uh, department before. When SpaceX was going through the initial flight for the IFT-1, which was ship 20 and booster 4, they were going through this whole process. It took a year. It took forever to do that. And... There are things they have to do to mitigate those circumstances, and they've done a lot of those closeouts for the IFT2. But the next thing that we have to really worry about, because SpaceX is ready, SpaceX is, they're on the they're on the brink of being ready, and then we have the FAA, which is closing out those sixty three things, and then the Fish and Wildlife Department. I want to show you this article from Reuters. U.S. could advance SpaceX license as soon as October after rocket exploded in April. So this is a couple days old, September 13th, but it has some very important things that we have to talk about. We have to think about this. 
So the FAA administrator, Polly Trottenberg, we talked about this on another episode, so we're not going to get into too much detail about this, but this is paraphrasing a bunch of stuff, but there's a important line here that we have to think about. Polly Trottenberg, we're working well with them and have been in good discussions. Talking about SpaceX teams are working together, and I think we're optimistic sometime next month. So they're thinking that there's a possibility within the next month that SpaceX and the FAA come to a conclusion that SpaceX is ready to launch IFT2. Acting FAA Administrator Polly Trentberg told reporters on the sidelines of a conference. Now, this is the important part. SpaceX would still need a separate environmental approval from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service before a launch. Trentberg did not say how long that might take. Everyone, stop holding your breath because... It's good. It might take a while. And I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person that's, oh, this could hold him back months. But there's a possibility. There's a real possibility that we could be held back for the Starship launch until next year. There's a, if the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service sees anything at all wrong with what happened here, the, the destruction of the Starship and anything underneath, the the ship when it launched if there's any demonstration from spacex that anything went wrong as far as fish and wildlife goes the fish and wildlife service could possibly open up an investigation that could take months possibly possibly a year because as we know the u.s government is not fast and people that work in the u.s government they do have jobs to do but they are nine to five workers they have government jobs get into work Nine in the morning, you leave at five in the afternoon and you don't stay overtime because you're a government employee because you like your job. But man, do I want to go home and hit up, hit up a, a restaurant on the way home, grab some food and then whatever, dinner with my family, whatever it is. But they have regular jobs and that's what these people do. And it's an OK thing for them to do because they have to make sure to get everything in order because if they don't get everything in order and i believe i saw this it might have been in this art in this article but maybe it wasn't this one but anyway there was a there was an article someplace else that i saw that was like would you rather just like skip over this stuff or are there going to be lawsuits in the future from environmental groups and things like that because if the u.s fish and wildlife department says it's okay to launch again, then the environmental groups will have little standing or less standing, I should say, to sue and to move forward with lawsuits, things of that nature. Yeah. So there's a possibility that this could take a while, but there's also a possibility that there are people at SpaceX that talk with the Fish and Wildlife Service and there are lobbyists and things like that that could push this through in a faster time frame. There's a possibility there are people that are really close to the matter that know way more than we do about this. But as we know from the environmental impact study from before, that took about a year. So if there's anything to do anything with that at all in that sort of time frame, that's going to be a huge pushback for SpaceX and for NASA, too, because they have to do Artemis 3. We started off with Artemis 3 here. Remember the beginning of the show, Artemis 3 contract? and there are some milestones they have to hit 
SpaceX has to hit a bunch of milestones in order to launch their Starship to the moon. They have to make sure that they clear the pad. They've done that. And they have to make it over the Gulf of Mexico and separate the booster from the ship. They didn't do that. Flight termination systems. What? Hot staging hopefully will work in the IFT2. And they'll be able to separate. And then Starship will be able to go on towards Kauai. And booster will end up in the Gulf of Mexico. But there's a possibility that doesn't work. So they're going to be held back one launch, one or two launches. And if they continue to explode over the Gulf of Mexico, the Fish and Wildlife Service and some other departments in the government may take a look at that. Even though they are cleared to launch there, is there any detriment to these things landing in the Gulf? But those are future topics that we'll have to talk about. But those that'll happen if these things do explode again. If they continue to explode over the Gulf of Mexico, they already have the permits to fly over there. So it's okay now. But if they continue to do it, investigations might open. So you never know. You really never know with these things because people in the government also want to see this succeed because the Artemis missions are, and as much as I, I don't really want to say it, the Artemis missions are their job creators and that's a good thing but it's also one of those things where artemis 3 has to go through and spacex has to make these milestones they have to make it to orbit once they make it to orbit they can prove that they can get the ship to orbit which is great they can stay in orbit a little bit they can check out those vacuum raptors they can make sure that everything works they don't even have to come back to earth they can just burn up in the atmosphere who cares at that point because all they have to do is get to the moon all they have to do is get to orbit and when they go to orbit, just eject some Starlink satellites and then test out the vacuum raptors. Eventually, there will be a human component to these starship to these yeah to these starship missions where people will actually dock with the starship in orbit, and they will conduct studies to make sure that it's human rated. But they only have a few years left. Like they want to do <laughs> they want to do uh, all this stuff within a few years. And that's an incredible engineering feat that SpaceX has to accomplish, which I don't doubt they'll do. I think they'll be able to do it, but it's still hundreds of launches away. I think, who is it? Gwen Shotwell said they have, they want to do a hundred plus launches of Starship before they actually put people in it. It's a, it's an incredible thing because it took SpaceX about 10 years to get people into a Falcon 9, about 10 years to human rate that thing. It was somewhere around there. I don't know the exact number, but it was somewhere around 10 years, five to 10 years. And Starship hasn't even really flown yet. So there's that too. The timeline's crazy fast. So I don't doubt that they'll do it. I really don't. But I, I think there might be some, there might be some pushback from something along the way. Hint, hint, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, please pass them. Let them go. <laughs> There's endangered species down there at Starbase. There's numerous, numerous species that are endangered down there that fly through or come over like the turtles come through. And the U.S. Wild, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has to make sure that they're taken care of, make sure that they're protected. And if they know that they're going to be OK, it'll just breeze right through. SpaceX will be like, all right, we're launching. See you guys later. We're going to space. And there's a possibility. Also, like I said before, that. This could be held up a month or two, and maybe we might not get a launch till 2024. But also, we know that NASA has influence, the U.S. Department of Defense has influence, 
And the SpaceX team is working closely with the Department of Defense, working very closely with NASA. So protecting the Earth, protecting the wildlife and fish and wildlife area around SpaceX's Starbase, important. But is moving forward with this program more important? I don't know. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is just doing their jobs. So we're not exactly sure what uh, is going to happen in the near future, but we do know that SpaceX is on the last few steps before they're ready to launch this thing. Yeah, it's going to be a wild ride in the next. I, I'm thinking FAA may give them may give them a mid October could get through all that paperwork uh, is a bunch of paperwork, but SpaceX will still need to separate environmental approval, which they're working with. I'm sure they're working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, just like they work with the FAA. They're probably in very close contact with them. What do we need to do? Where do we mess up? What's going on? How can we fix these things? You got any nudge, nudge? Do you got any info for us? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a wild ride in the next few months. Michael Maxey says Starship must do 100 launches before NASA will approve a manned mission on Starship. Yeah, that's the kicker. And they have to do those within a few years. I suspect that orbital refueling may also require human EV activities, which would be needed for Artemis 3. So you think, oh wait, so the ship-to-ship refueling, do you think people have to manually connect that in some way? Like an EV of that? Because that sounds like the craziest job ever. Yeah. Having a pad that holds up would be a start to avoid FAA issues, Roger. Yeah. The way that they mitigated the pad seems like it's going to work, but I really hope it does. The new sprinkler system and the new deluge system seems like a really good idea, and it seems like it's working well so far. But also remember, we thought that about the first launch too. So we thought that about IFT-1, that the launch pad was going to be fine. And then uh, we saw what happened. The rock tornado that happened underneath it. It was crazy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a look at this poll real quick, too, while we're here. When will Starship launch? October. 86% of you said October. November, 6%. Get your votes in chat right now if you haven't voted yet. November, 6%. December, 3%. 2024, say 6%. Wow, November and 2024 are neck and neck 6%. Bob Brink, thank you so much for that super set, super chat. 25 ducats going in the bucket. My man. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. That keeps the show going. Keeps me doing these things every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Why don't you have your starships? There you go. You need your starships. I don't know if I can do it 25 times. Let's let it roll for a little bit. But thank you, Bob. You're your lifesaver here. This really helps out the show. It helps me continue doing this stuff. RGM said, uh, I believe the pad will hold, but not for the amount of launches they're expecting besides being overcomplicated. Wow. Starship will launch anytime. I hope it launches. Whoa, Bob Brink coming in hot with five gift subs. Liam, Weird Not Lane, ED, Middle T and Pyro. And Coyote J, welcome to the flight crew. Welcome to the show. Just Curious says, I think the pad might break under full power 33 after engines. I am, I am hoping for the best. Bob Brink, wow. Again, thank you. I really don't know what to say, man. This is really cool. Thank you. And welcome everybody to the crew. You are awesome. 
and you're more than welcome here. And we will have, I'm actually working on new emotes and badges for you guys. So all these new members, uh, you'll have some new stuff in the next show, which will be Monday at one o'clock PM Eastern time. Roger M says, wouldn't be surprised for further launches. Basics completely redesigned the pad, building a new one with a flame diverter has gravity assist. Ooh, and a water deluge. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think so. If this one doesn't work, I hope it does. I really hope it does. I really hope what they have now, the, the deluge system and the new pad, I hope it works. I hope it works a hundred percent and they never have to replace it. And that's it. And it's done. And they can just move on and they can continue just launching. But if they redesign the pad, they're working on other ships right now. They're working on other boosters right now. And the fact that they continue to work on those things while they're working on the pad and everything too, that's incredible. Yeah, it's absolutely bonkers that they continue to do these things. And if it doesn't work, they're going to be on that immediately because then they're going to have to do another 63 things with the FAA. And when they do another 63 things with the FAA, then the the FAA, of course, will have to go through. There will be another test. They have to check some things off and SpaceX and the FAA will work closely together. Elon had a meeting with the FAA right after that that news piece that didn't have any audio for some reason. <laughs> Four years. Debs, thanks so much. Starkler, hydrate. Oh, yeah. I don't have much water left, but I will, because of you, I will drink some. I'll make sure not to squirt it everywhere because this stupid straw. There we go. Yeah, Bob Brink does it again. Exactly. Yeah, welcome all the new members to the flight crew. You are awesome, and I'm happy you're here. And we also have a Discord. I'm going to give you guys the Discord link while we're here for the Stage Zero Discord, just because it's more fun when more people are there. Right? I think it's way more fun. There you go. Discord link in chat. So there we go. I really do. I really like that discussion of the the pad is it going to work and that's going to be a huge thing because Elon said there's been a thousand updates to the ship and the booster between ift1 and ift2 so booster and ship huge upgrades we're going to keep these starships going because debs came in hot with that super chat too so we're going to keep these going for a while because we're having a good time we're having a party there's no party like an ift2 party so the the new systems that are in place deluge system sprinkler system whatever you want to call it the porta potty i've heard people call it <laughs> the bidet yeah i've heard all sorts of people say different things but if that works this time it's going to be insanely cool if it works this time cool they'll check it out they'll make sure everything is up to par for the next launch they'll do inspections that'll take them a while to do inspections to make sure everything works after this launch, it'll take them about a week. It is, yeah, and Roger M, there we go again. These engines are too powerful for any pad. The giant trench on a Roscosmos Gagarin pad would be the best choice for 100 plus launches a year. I think they might have to go to a traditional. I, I don't know if this is the case or not, but this is the most powerful rocket ever. And if they can figure out how to do this on this stand without a traditional flame diverter trench, this is going to be, this is, it's silly. It's, it is like a meme. It's groundbreaking. <laughs> it's a groundbreaking system, so to speak. 
Oh, your Starship shirt came in today. Nice. Enjoy space. I'm wearing actually my Max Q shirt. There we go. From the Stage Zero store, from the StarshipShirts.com store. So if you want to check it out, StarshipShirts.com. That's another way that if you want to help support the show, you can go to StarshipShirts.com. We get a little bit from every sale there, and you can also support the show, and you can show people that you are a space nerd. So StarshipShirts.com. Thanks, Debs, for that little shout out. Michael Maxey says, one of the 63 mitigations is to increase flow of the deluge system. And they have been working on the deluge system over the last week or so. They installed some new pipes and things over there, some new fittings. The flow of the deluge system is possibly better than it was the last time we saw it. Do you think they're going to have to test that again before they launch? Do you think they're going to do, because they added some new pipes, do you think they're going to have to test that? Just do a quick deluge, like move ship 25 off to the side a little bit where ship 26 is over in that direction and then check the deluge system, make sure everything works well. You think they're going to have to do that? Because they may have to do a quick, I don't know, what does it take, 20 minutes to do that? To do the whole, maybe the whole setup? I think they should add more water. Yeah, I think the, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what they're going to have to do. But Michael Maxey, you're right. Stage zero is too close to, to sea level for a flame diverter trench. Yeah, unless they build it up, which they're not going to do. So they're not going to build like a, because that's a, that would be a huge undertaking, a gigantic cement pad that would just be like five stories tall. It, it would just, and how would you get a starship up there? Because you would have to make an incline as well. And it would, it just wouldn't work. It's, it's such a complicated engineering feat that they're just going to have to wait till they, if they're going to do a flame trench at all, they're going to have to wait till they get to NASA to Kennedy Space Center to do anything like that. Because every all the systems are in place over there. So I think they should raise the launch stand higher off the floor. They might end up doing that eventually. Uh, who knows? Who knows what they're going to do with pad? So there's a possibility that they that they do that. But we're going to have to wait till IFT2, IFT3, IFT4. We'll see. Army Corps of Engineers would most likely deny a flame turn, a trench anyway. Yeah, I agree. Ten men. I 100% agree. The... Corps of of Army Engineers would just be like, eh, that's not a good idea. So we're going to get that out of there. It's just, it's such a giant undertaking that it it would be like building a skyscraper or like a five-story building, but it has to be like, it has to be long, right? Yeah, because they have to, and they would have to roll their transport up this long giant hill to the top of the flame diverter or have a more massive, then they would have to move everything. They'd have to move the tower, everything up the flame diverter. It just, it's just a logistical nightmare. And that would put everything behind schedule for, I would say a year. Like that takes so much time because one, not only do they have to build the flame diverter, they have to move the tower. If they use this, what they have now, but if they build something new, then they could possibly they could possibly build that into the structure, the system, in some way. But they'd have to move like it's like a it's like a Tetris puzzle at that point, right? They have to move all these pieces around just to get everything in place so they could put the flame diverter there, like a giant tower, and build a new tower on top of the flame diverter, 
and they'd have to wait for the concrete to cure and all, all the other stuff too. But yeah, it just, it seems like it's an impossible, it seems like an impossible task down there, but it's possible. It is possible. People have built flame diverters before in swampy regions, hence like NASA, <laughs> all of NASA, <laughs> Kennedy Space Center. Easiest way would be building some metal extensions for the launch stand and add some section to the tower. Oh. So just like, just put it up another 50 feet or so. Can't they test the water delivery system by doubling the time of half power static fire? That's how they do it. Yeah. They test with, they don't do a full duration, full power. Usually they do either they'll do a full duration, half power or something in those lines. And then they'll just be like times two. <laughs> what happened? They have sensors in the pad too. That's the thing too. They have sensors all over the pad and the surrounding area. So they know what's going on. They know what kind of pressure it, it has and knows, uh, they know what kind of thrust that the engines can shoot out. So it's like they know what they need to do. It's just getting the math and the engineering perfect before they can move forward with it. Yeah. So this launch pad was already extended further up with some extensions. Yeah. It, it seems like an incredible task to do that because then they would have to move the whole tower up too because the arms only go up so high to lift stuff and everything's it's in the right place right now so it seems like they would just build a bigger tower and a bigger stand and just use the second tower i i think and they would just probably just keep decimating tower one and stand one and just be like you know what we're just going to use this until it breaks until the wheels fall off and just keep just blasting it away so i don't know there's a possibility they just keep doing what they're doing. I think another section plus another tower section is feasible. Just needs more charges, <laughs> more stairs. I'm optimistic. Think it uh, will work as is. I am. I'm with you, Gator. I just really wish we had. I really wish it just launched so I could just be like, okay, it works. Let's just keep going. That's what I, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for it to just work and just do the thing. Just go to maybe orbitish area like that would be nice can you just launch over the gulf i just want to see that and if you do could you please just either can you please just do it and don't blow up the pad again i laid again to the party mike that's okay we got a party at least you made it just needs a taller launch pad but that's a lot of work yeah it's a huge undertaking and when i say huge i'm saying like it is the, the launch pad's like a five-story building. The tower is huge. The tower, not the tower, but the mount is gigantic. And it's not just like giant, like you would think it's giant. I've spent, I spent so much time down there that I can't even grasp how big it is. Yeah. It, it just makes, it's doesn't make any sense to me. I tried like over and over in my head. I'm like, this thing is the biggest thing ever. That I've seen skyscrapers. I've been in New York City a bunch of times. And sure, that's huge and overwhelming, but you don't just see skyscrapers with nothing else around them. But this pad is like so large, but like adding something out of the top of it, you'd have to lift the whole thing up. You'd have to cut someplace in those legs and you have to make sure that everything works perfectly. Yeah. So it's just, it's enormous. I don't even understand. I can't comprehend how big this thing is. 
even though I've seen it hundreds, 300 times. So yeah, it just, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to be a problem right away. I think they're going to be, I think they're going to do a few, a few more tests before they actually go crazy with this thing and try to figure out a different way to do it. Probably five more, five, six more tests before if this pad doesn't work, like they're going to figure out why it doesn't work and then try to figure out ways to make it work. And one of those ways could be lifting it up, but another way could be just not lifting it up and building something to mitigate whatever's happening underneath the pad. So if it's going to be like a diverter, if it's going to be a trench, well, there's no way to do a trench down there. So there's not going to, there's not going to be a trench at pad one, launch pad one. So the OLM not going to get that. So diverter probably that's the only thing I can think of, but how do they build that? And how do they make sure that nothing gets just ripped apart? We'll see. That's where we're at right now. How tall is the launch pad? I believe it's five stories tall. It's gigantic. I might be a little bit off there. SpaceX still need to begin testing of landing. Yeah, they could be doing that behind closed doors too. They could be doing simulations. I'm sure they're doing simulations of material, material science and engineering simulations and things like that. So the, so the fact that's already happening and there's probably pieces somewhere in a warehouse where they're testing things. But they do have to attach the legs to the ship. They have to do so many things within a few years. It seems like an incredible task. And it is an incredible task, but it almost seems impossible. But if anybody could do it, I think SpaceX could do it. They have such a good team, such a dedicated and good team. But also, if they can't do it, they're working with NASA. And NASA knows if it's not right, don't fly it. If it's not ready, do not fly it. So they know that it's, it's going to be okay if they don't get, if they don't get this right, right away. They know it's an important piece of the HLS program and the Artemis program. So if they need a little bit more time, that's going to be okay. 16 meters tall. Let's see. That's 52 feet. Yeah. So five stories tall, 52 feet tall, five stories. It's huge. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, it's some, somewhere around that height. But it's also huge. It's, it's big. It's, if you think about it, nine meters around for the Starship, 30 feet-ish around for the Starship and the booster. But then the OLM is also bigger than that on either side. So what, 50, 60 meters around? Or not 50, 50 60 feet around. Wait, is that right? 12, 13, 14 meters around for the OLM, some, somewhere along those lines. It's gigantic. It's gigantic. And that's just a guess. And I'm also tired, so I'm probably way off. Looking at the latest 33 engine static fire, as long as Starship doesn't sit for too long, like on the first flight, I am fully hopeful the Delia system will do the job with minimal repair work. I really hope so, Mike. And that was a wild launch, wasn't it? That was a wild launch. I loved that. When it was counting down to zero, and there's we're 30 seconds out now, so we'll take a look at this. But when it was counting down to zero, and you could see something happening, you can see something happening, and it's I don't know, is it gonna make it off the pad? And it was such a roller coaster ride of emotions. I got to see it, and I was just like, what is What's happening? And this, as you can see, they ignite in this one, two, 
three, four, five. And then it starts like slowly lift, but like at the, the, like the seven to 10 second mark, it finally starts lifting off like full power. It's so cool, man. So cool. Yeah. At about the 10, it took a while for it to get off that pad. So that was wild. Look at this shot too. This is such a cool shot. A little bit wavy, a little bit wavy, but that's because the atmosphere in Texas is really hot and muggy and humid. So can't really ask for a better shot than this. I really wish they'd release the, the 6K footage of this. That would be so wild to see. Just punch in there. Yeah, that would be so cool, man. I would be so pumped at that point. Gator, thanks so much for the two. Appreciate that, man. Of course, you get some starships or the donos for the super chats. Eight seconds, static fire into straight concrete, right? I was screaming at my scream, climb, baby. I know I was like, I was like those scenes of people just like close, like just going like just barely looking through their fingers. That was me at that point. I was just go, just please just go. Yeah. Yeah, it took 10 seconds to get off the pad, so static fire should be at least 15 seconds. Yeah, I think so, too. Rocket launches are like going to a, a base concert. I feel experience, not a visual experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was insane. Like, this launch was probably the most excited I've ever been to watch something on a screen. Like, I'm not a sports guy. I'm not, I'm, I like skateboarding. I'm a skateboard guy and I've been watching like sp skateboard contests forever and things like that. They get me excited, but also you can see like the passion from like people from around the world. If you watch the, oh, here it goes into the death spiral, but you can see the passion from people during these launches. It's crazy. And they're like, oh yeah, it's got to separate. Remember in the launch? They're like, oh, yeah, and about this time, you can, oh, there it goes. It's, yeah, beginning of the end, my friends, <laughs> at the beginning of the end. Wow, we're going to do a watch party for, for IFT2 as well. So, yeah, it's going to be a wild ride. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freak out. So, if you guys just want to, like, watch with somebody that's going to freak the F out and be there with this, like, same passion that you have just just subscribe and get notifications because yeah i'll be here for you like i know it's going to be streaming on x so we're going to do a pre-game we're going to do a countdown all that stuff and got to get excited about it and then watch the stream together so yeah please do that and sorry about i didn't get uh to do the stream of the uh, nasa announcement the other day for the uap stuff just want to let you guys know about that something came up and i couldn't get up get to the stream that early so that early it was like 9 30 in the morning but i couldn't get to uh stream at that point my bad my apologies and then blam there she goes yeah so altitude 29 kilometers speed 2129 kilometers an hour that's so fast yeah so if you're gonna if you're into space flight and you're into spacex Take a second, hit the subscribe button. It really helps out the channel, but it also helps you out because you not only get updates from me and when I go live, but also you get updates 
probably in your feed from other Starflight, Starship and spaceflight channels that you don't know about yet. YouTube will put it in their algorithm that you like spaceflight, and then you'll start seeing other channels that you weren't aware of. So please take a second, like the video, and hit the subscribe button and the bell so we can all hang out and watch these things together. But yeah, thanks again, Gator, for that super chat. Watch the Jessica Kirsch feed of 420 from Port Isabel. Oh yeah, I've seen Jessica's stuff. Jessica is a trooper, man. She's been down there forever. Yeah, she's doing great work down there. I've been watching some of your older videos, skateboarding and stuff. Very cool. Thank you. I'll be here. Nice. Thanks, Mike. I would really do appreciate that. So I think that's it for today. I think we covered everything we needed to cover. I'm going to go through a real quick breakdown of everything that happened today. Just so if anybody's just tuning in, you get what's going on. Artemis three engines were tested for the HLS program. SpaceX did the the Starship HLS will be powered by two variants of the company's Raptor engines was optimized for to operate in atmospheric pressure at sea level at Starbase or at NASA Kennedy Space Center and one optimized to operate in space or in a vacuum where there is no atmosphere. SpaceX posted a video of this and I will mute myself because it was super loud. They tested Raptor engine demonstration of a descent burn to the lunar surface. So they have these engines, the Raptor vacuum engines. And they have to make it to the surface, so they shoot these boosters off. It's about a 30-second burn on that one. Then they had the test of a Raptor vacuum engine chilled to mimic conditions after a long coast period in space. So on their way to the moon, they're coasting, they're getting ready, and it's super chilled. And then they have to blast real quick. They have to make sure that the Raptor engines work. And there, this could be something they use to to get closer to the moon as look at how chilled it is everything around the raptor even on the ground is chilly that's how cold this thing is but this is a real quick thrust and they're going to the moon with these things so kathy leaders used to work at nasa and kathy now works at spacex and kathy had a few videos if we didn't have audio for some reason i'll fix that next time she said they're they've destacked ship 25 so they can add the flight termination system to it because they're doing the final stages of the of the Starship prep for IFT2. So that was a video that Kathy was in. And it's another one from South Space Padre, South Padre Island, SPI. That's where this conference was. And we went over real quick for all the haters and doubters out there, conspiracy theorists that say that SpaceX and the FAA don't really work together. This is Elon Musk saying, Hey, I'm going to an FAA meeting right after this, so I'm late for it. So the FAA and SpaceX are working very closely to close out those 63 mitigation efforts from SpaceX to get to the IFT2 launch. And then we watched a little bit of the Starship, but there was a there was a spot right here, right when they launched. And we're going to go like 13, 11, 10, 9. Eight, seven, et cetera, et cetera. T minus zero, and then kablam. And there was some chunks that flew everywhere. The rock tornado is Elon's. This is the biggest plume. So highway four is this little road. Oh, here, I got to show you that. I got to scroll down a little bit. This highway right here. That's a whole, that's a two lane road right there. Look at how like small that is compared to this plume. 
and then the plume goes forever. So things got shot around. There was dust everywhere. The FAA said they're closing out the final things. We're working well with them and have been in good discussions. Teams are working together, and I think we're optimistic sometime next month for a launch of Starship. Then we had this line, which is SpaceX would still need a separate environmental approval from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service before a launch. Trottenberg did not say how long that might take. So all of this, that's Fish and Wildlife. That's the Fish and Wildlife Department. Any of this stuff that was blown out all over the place, could it have affected fish? Could it have affected birds? Any sort of wildlife? Because even though there is a plume on most most rockets always have some sort of plume. This is substantially larger than most <laughs> rockets. And there was a lot of debris and sand and dust that could affect habitats for environmental species for endangered species. So Fish and Wildlife Department probably going to take a look at this and go, okay, that's not good. So it's a possibility the FAA gets through with their stuff next month but then the u.s fish and wildlife service goes we're gonna wait because you know why you may have messed up some fish you may have messed up some birds and we have to make sure that our investigation shows that everything's good because if it's not there's going to be lawsuits and we don't want lawsuits we don't want people mad at us yeah there's there that's basically where what it came down to yeah, ship and booster are getting the FTS. Yeah, they're de stacked the ship 25 from booster to put the FTS on. Like a bird spreading wing. <laughs> exactly. Except those wings are very sandy and very dusty. <laughs> very sandy, dusty. Let's see. Would you consider this as a delay or just time SpaceX can use for something else? Well, I don't, I wouldn't consider it a delay. I would consider this as normal just stuff that happens during test rocket phase when there's a new vehicle things like this happen it happened when nasa first started up too there was there were environmental protests there were environmental studies those things took a long time like years to figure out the faa environmental impact study from last year that took a while to figure out too and there could be delays because of other environmental studies and things like that but it's just par for the course. This is a new launch site too. It's been around for a while, but it's pretty new because they haven't really launched a fully capable starship until IFT-1. They were doing small launches from the ships were going suborbital of 15,000 feet or whatever it was at the highest, but a couple thousand feet up normally and then landing or exploding. So this is a whole different thing in the FAA and the, the environmental Parts of the government um, have to look at these things. So it's par for the course, but I think they're always going to be working on something new. I think they're always going to be working on a new booster. They're always going to be working on a new ship. There's things down the line. Like they're still working on getting the whole Starbase infrastructure. They demolished, what are they called? Bays. They've demolished the mid bay. They've demolished some tents and they're rebuilding some things over there. So there's going to be uh, just a lot of new stuff that's happening there all the time. It's crazy. Did NASA and F Falcon 9 prototype have to gain FAA license, or is this just something to do with Starship? Every rocket has to get FAA approval. Everything that flies has to get FAA approval. 
a flight approval as well is a different thing than showing they have to show the FAA that this is going to be safe-ish. And they know it's a prototype and it's experimental and things might not go perfect. Well, the FAA does take that in consideration, but but there was a similar there's a similar process for the Falcon 9 in this. But this is just a little bit a little bit bigger, a little bit huger, so a little bit different. So understand why you would want to buy this property for launching rockets. This is going to be your life. Battles every day. I think it'll be battles for a while, for a little bit, but I think those battles will they'll subside over time because it's, it's happened with NASA too. Those battles started pretty brutal. And over time, as you've seen, we can just launch things from NASA's Kennedy Space Center. And now they consider the wildlife around there is pretty, pretty good. And they consider, what do they say? They say alligators. And there's another thing that they consider like extra security for Kennedy Space Center as a joke. It's like alligators and like snakes or something like that. I forgot what it was. But they're like extra security is a joke as, okay, we work with the environment and the environmental animals and things, but it is, it's a big, it's a big concern for a lot of people. There are haters out there that will stand in the way of SpaceX go, doing anything and people that environmental groups, the, they will take everything into consideration when SpaceX does anything at Starbase. So. This gigantic plume of dust. What's in this dust? We don't know. So the environmental groups in the fish and wildlife have to take that in consideration too. That's a huge plume. That's miles. Like from Starbase here to the launch site is about a mile and a half, I think. Something like that. Really quick drive. But it's like this plume is miles. And this is 400 feet tall. The tower is 400 feet tall. This is clearing the tower already. So 400 plus feet tall is the, is the plume right now. And it just goes up a little bit higher. Look at, look at that. It goes, that's about 600 feet, 500 feet, 600 feet at that point. And then it goes over and then it dissipates as it, as the rocket moves past it. But these buildings are huge. They have to fit a whole booster in there. Boosters are 250. So this on top of this, I'm just like drawing around here with my mouse, but 250 for the middle of it, and then I'd stack another one on it. So it's 700 feet tall. And then it just keeps going. It just, it moves all over the place. So the fish and wildlife people are just, they're going to look at that and see what kind of damage, if any, that it caused. And if it seems okay, then they're just going to let them launch, but they have to do an environmental study on it. They have to do a, an impact study on it, make sure nothing's going to get hurt. Yeah, and the wildlife gets adjusted to the rocket activity when there is launch activity. Exactly. And that's pretty weird, right? Pretty weird. Let's take a quick look at the poll in chat, and then we're going to be out for today. But I do appreciate everybody stopping by and hanging out and subscribing and liking the video and becoming part of the channel today. Thanks, Bob Brank, for all you do. Super chats and gifting memberships. And to the new members today, welcome. We have 116 votes. October, 84% say October, 6% say November, December, 4%, 2024, 5%. So 4% say December and 5% is 2024. So we have overwhelming October votes and the others are in the five to four to 6% range. So pretty even down the board after the October 
how many feet is eight meters the diameter off the starship? Starship is about 30 feet around. It's nine meters around. Hopefully by the time we see a return to launch site landing, we will have seen Starship launch many times and their reliability improved. Also, they will have learned how to handle landings. Yeah, I yeah, it's gonna take them a while. It's gonna I think they're gonna I don't think they're gonna land they won't I don't think they'll land the first ten. Not even close. I don't that's my guess, because they don't want to ruin Boca Chica. I think they have to like nail the landing so many times that they just can't they because they can't risk it why would they put themselves months and months in the hole when they have so many important things to do because they're just going to ditch all these things i think the boosters and the ships the booster is going to go into the gulf of mexico and they might fish them out eventually or they might just let them sink but also the ships can just burn up in the atmosphere i don't think they're going to land anything at boca chica for for a substantial amount of time it's gonna it's not worth it they don't need to the booster maybe, but they can continue building these things for pennies on the dollar because they have a NASA contract for a billion dollars. So they have enough money to work on these things and they have outside funding and inside funding. So they have enough money to do these missions. And also like the money that NASA gave them is going to help them continue building future starships. So this is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Anyway, I am out of here guys i really do appreciate everybody today for everything you've done let's see what we got we got gator with the super chat thank you so much gator debs for the super chat and hydrate i'm out of a lot of water deb so i got a little bit left bob brink the five cosmos crew memberships welcome to the crew everybody welcome liam welcome weird not lame i like that name that's a great name ejd middle tn pyro thank you for becoming a member and coyote j here we go we'll do this on the way out. And then Bob Brink for the super chat. Thank you, Bob. I really do appreciate you. And I appreciate everybody else. And first hanging out here and being part of this. But let's look at Carlos real quick. I saw this real quick. Biology is an all pro conser- conservation and life protection. But just check on Google Maps. It says the affected area versus the untouched immense area around. It disappears big time. Yeah, it's a gigantic space down there. It's a so there's miles and miles of protected lands down there. Yeah, the size of the affected area versus the untouched immense area around, it disappears big time. Yeah, it. the thing is, there are protected species all over that area too. I think it's not about the area, but there are. it's more about what was affected while they did that. We're tackling some serious issues surrounding SpaceX. And Senator Elizabeth Warren has been very vocal in her calls for an investigation into SpaceX's role in international affairs. The point of contention? A recent decision to block Ukraine from utilizing Starlink satellite network for a military operation against Russian warships. This issue is sparking wider debates about the authority private companies should or should not have in matters of national and international security. First, let's contextualize the situation that has Senator Warren and many others up in arms. Recently communicated via X, Elon Musk said about a very sensitive topic. The Ukrainian government had asked SpaceX to activate the Starlink network in the vicinity of Sevastopol. Now, they plan to use this capability against the Russian fleet anchored there. After due consideration, the decision was to decline their request. 
Had they accepted it, it would have thrust SpaceX into the direct role of participating in military action and conflict escalation. Now, Senator Warren's argument focuses on whether international policy decisions should be influenced by a single individual or a private entity. She has also alluded to reevaluating the Defense Department's contractual relations with SpaceX. The question here isn't just about this one instance with Ukraine, though. It goes far beyond this. Stretching into the dynamics of how private companies, especially in the tech sector, integrate and interact with government bodies. Senator Jack Reed, who chairs the Armed Services Committee, echoed Warren's concerns. While recognizing the crucial role that SpaceX has played in democratizing access to space, even for national security missions, Reed questions the ultimate authority a private company should possess in national security decisions. Traditional roles are shifting. Government sectors that were once exclusively state-controlled are now increasingly privatized or partnered with private entities. Where should the lines be drawn? It's noteworthy to state that at the time of Ukraine's request, SpaceX had no specific defense contracts concerning the use of Starlink in Ukraine. However, the Defense Department has recently started funneling undisclosed financial resources to support Starlink's operational use there. Now, as if the Starlink controversy wasn't complex enough, let's throw another log onto the fire. SpaceX is currently facing legal action from the Justice Department, accused of discriminating against refugees and asylum seekers during hiring. The department alleges that SpaceX has violated the Immigration and Nationality Act, citing that they discouraged or outright rejected these groups in the hiring processes. In response to the lawsuit, SpaceX has stated, that they were advised not to hire non-U.S. permanent residents due to international arms trafficking laws. Yet the Justice Department counters this claim by stating that refugees and asylum seekers possess the right to live and work in the United States indefinitely. They argue that under export control laws, these groups stand on equal level footing with U.S. citizens. Now, the issue here is multifaceted. On one hand, you have SpaceX, a private company working closely with government bodies, navigating a labyrinth of international laws and ethical conundrums. On the other hand, you have a government body questioning the ethical framework and legal boundaries within which they operate. So what's the core issue here? Both these situations, the refusal to aid Ukraine's military action and the Justice Department's lawsuit, point to a complex interplay of factors at the crossroads of technology, policy, and ethics. And these issues are not isolated. They're reflective of broader questions the world is grappling with. And what role should private entities play in sectors traditionally managed by the state? Where does the moral compass point when you're standing at the intersection of commerce, innovation, and ethics? Now, decisions made by tech companies are often not black and white. For example, the refusal to activate the Starlink network for Ukraine was not a matter of taking sides, but rather a complicated ethical decision. If SpaceX had agreed to their quest, it would be directly involved in a military conflict, which is a responsibility that goes beyond the scope of a private company. The situation highlights how easily tech companies can be pulled into geopolitical conflicts and raises questions about what checks should be in place to govern these kinds of interactions. Government contracting with private tech companies for services related to national security isn't new, though. But as technology advances, the scale and impact of these contracts grow. And this raises new ethical and policy questions. Should a private company like SpaceX with considerable impact on national security infrastructure have the ability to make unilateral decisions that have been traditionally the prerogative of sovereign states? 
It's a question that's becoming more pertinent as the lines between state and private sector blur. Now, turning to the Department of Justice lawsuit, it's worth noting that the hiring policies of tech companies often intersect with complex laws and regulations. However, these policies should not be allowed to discriminate against individuals based on their nationality or immigration status, as the Department of Justice alleges. But here, too, the lines are not clear-cut, not black and white. SpaceX, given the nature of its work, is bound by export control laws that can indeed restrict hiring in some instances. The question then is whether such laws were interpreted too broadly, leading to discriminatory hiring practices, and this case again shows the complexity involved with private companies taking on roles traditionally held by the state. What's next for SpaceX? They're working actively to understand the complexities of this issue. Now, the balance between working closely with government agencies while maintaining ethical responsibility is intricate. It's something that they don't take lightly. The coming days and weeks will surely bring out dialogue, discussion, and perhaps changes in how these kinds of situations are approached, not just by SpaceX, but by the entire tech industry, possibly. Now, these controversies surrounding SpaceX shine a light on broader debates about the role of private companies in public and international affairs. The increased intersectionality between private enterprise and state functions raises valid concerns that are only going to become more complicated as technology advances. What we're witnessing are early growing pains of a new era where traditional boundaries are being redefined. This has been an intense but crucial discussion, and it's only the tip of the iceberg. We'll be following these stories as they unfold, so make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast on your preferred platform. It's free, takes a moment, until next time, keep questioning, keep innovating, and keep looking up. And please take care of yourselves and each other, and I'll see you in the next one.